0: i This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy Leaders of Beautiful Struggle. And we have with us a mentor of mine, somebody who is really important to black Baltimore political life. This is Senator Joe Carter. Um, Thank you for being on with us in our In Search of Black Power podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Finally, we made this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's a lot I want to talk to you about. It's a bunch of stuff I've been wanting us to talk about on camera because it needs to be, you know, on record. So we're going to go through a lot of stuff. Before we jump into that, though, um, if you just talk about your career as a legislator, just some of the stuff that you worked on, just kind of general introduction stuff.
1: Sure. So as, as you know, I've, I'm, I just won re-election to the Senate um, in, in my Maryland. second term, Senate of Maryland. And um, so this, I'll be going into my second term, the first term. Um, we can talk a little bit about the issues there. But prior to that, I had been in the House of Delegates for uh, three and a half terms, and um, I had resigned in 2016, only to wind up running for the Senate in 2018. Um, when I resigned from the House of Delegates, I thought that my political career was over, and I wanted it to be over. Um, I had uh, not had a very pleasant experience in the House of Delegates for in Maryland politics, and um, it was so depleting to my soul that I just didn't want to ever be involved in politics again, which is interesting because I get so angry when I meet people and they say, oh, I don't get involved in <laughs> politics, right? <laughs> but um, but that's a little different. Um, for me, it was just, you know, constantly like feeling like I was... I'm um, banging my head against a brick wall, and the only thing that was happening is that my head was getting bruised and I was getting concussions, mm. but I wasn't getting anything accomplished. Um, mm. And then before that, of course, uh, for and still, I'm a lawyer, I practice mainly criminal defense law, and um, and, uh, and I'm a lifelong resident of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. My mom was a school teacher after the death of my father. At first, she was a housewife and mother, and then my dad abruptly died in 1971, and um, she went to teach. My dad was civil rights, known civil rights activist, Walter P. Carter.
0: So uh, say a little bit more about some of the issues you took up when you were in the House of Delegates, um, you know, because I think, yeah, just, just so people are clear, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, around Baltimore, around the state, you know, know about some of your work. You know, there's this emergence of like criminal justice reform being a thing, but um, but you led on a lot of that stuff before it was popular. If you want to just say, you know, a little bit of some of the issues you worked on, you know, while you were in the House of Delhi.
1: So when I first got elected, it was 2003. And I can tell you that um, I went in there just taking my experience as a then, I was a You know, not as much of a seasoned attorney, but I'd been a criminal defense attorney for a number of years. And so um, one of the issues I knew that was critically important just from my work outside of the legislature was the idea of expungement of records. Um, And and as you know, here we are. That was 2003. Mm -hmm. We're in 2000, next session will be 2023, Mm -hmm. a full 20 years. And we are still working on issues of expungement. Mm -hmm. And so I had a couple of bills to start out with, which was... um, um, to be able to expunge um, non-convictions, be able to expunge your record if you're charged with multiple crimes but convicted of only one then you were unable and still in many respects unable to expunge the whole record um, the outside of your one convicted charge. Um, and then another one was this thing that we did pass eventually in my final year in the House of Delegates 2016, we eventually passed um, the subsequent conviction rule, the rule that said that the, well, the Maryland law that said that, that required you to, prohibited you from being able to expunge any conviction. Um, pri- if, you'd, if you'd had a conviction um, that you did not, you failed to expunge, And it was expungible, but you got anything later than that, then you were then forever foreclosed from expunging that. And so I started out with those two bills in 2003 when I first was elected, not with any advocacy groups, (laughs) not with, you know, any provocation, just because I knew they were – I couldn't understand how somebody could be charged with a crime, not convicted of a crime, and then still have it on their record. So that was just, to me, a common sense thing. (laughs) But think about this. Common sense, I thought. Now with 20 years later, multiple – advocacy groups collaborating on trying to get that done. And we still don't completely have unit of charges fixed in terms of being able to make sure people can expunge everything except the convicted charge. Mm. So um, that one example shows you um, how slow the Maryland legislature has been to move on things that some of us think are common sense things. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the lives, particularly of black people um, who are Overrepresented it in the criminal justice system because of over-arrest and over-prosecution and all of that, um, overcharging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know we're harmed the most, and and those issues where we are harmed the most tend to be the issues that Maryland is slowest to mm-hmm. move on. Mm-hmm. So then you know subsequent to that there was O'Malley with the illegal arrest, and I had a bill. I remember I had a bill to have automatic expungement of any arrest that doesn't result in charges, and it was big to do about it. They killed the bill vilified me and then handed it to another delegate who had nothing to do with the issue to pass the following year. Mm-hmm. And they only killed it simply, I think, because they just didn't want me to have that. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and I'll tell you, what I felt that was, O'Malley was, that was right when um, around 2006 or seven when O'Malley was running for governor. Mm-hmm. And they felt that this was, uh, they mischaracterized, first of all, always my intent, but also looked at this as harmful to him. In, t- in his quest for governor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to pass a bill that was a massive human rights violation, a fix, a, it wasn't even a fix. It was, you know, to, to, to repair some of the damage right. caused by it. Um, wasn't even allowed to pass that because of the political um, aspirations of Martin O'Malley, a man, a white man from Montgomery County who came to Baltimore and became the mayor.
0: Mm. So, so we're going to delve deep into that. Before we do... Um, if you can talk a little, you know, one of the things that I find, you know, kind of as I have come up through the ranks in terms of like young folks engaged in political activism, I find that it just be a woeful lack of attention paid to some of the history, like the history of black folks engaged in challenging racism and white supremacy at a level of policy in Baltimore. And I know two people um, who I know have influenced you in your work. You know, you mentioned your father, Walter B. Carter. Um, he was tremendously influential in some of the history on advocacy on police accountability. You know, he was in the center of when you look back at the archives of newspaper editorials and, and someone like Perry Mitchell, you know, and, and I know that they both at different points headed up the Community Action Agency, you know, here in Baltimore um, and both, you know, tremendous in, you know, how they conducted it. So if you could just talk, you know, a little bit about just the impact that um, them and others have had on you in terms of your political worldview and and activity?
1: So I think Perrin Mitchell, Walter Carter, and a a number of the people that were active in either civil rights and or politics or just any kind of black leadership when I was growing up um, had had a tremendous influence on me. In fact, they are the driving force behind why I do anything. Um, not just politics, but, but, you know, the the desire for black people in Baltimore to realize our power potential, our economic potential, um, and, and have equal treatment um, has been really a quest of my life because it's what I was born into. <laughs> when I was born and was and growing up, you had people like my dad and, and Perrin and so many other people that had dedicated their lives to that mission and so of course when my dad died when i was very young i just naturally assumed as a kid well then i must be here to carry that on because he's not here to do it anymore and so it just kind of that's the way i interpreted his death and that's the way that i've kind of conducted my life and i'm sure it's driven me to one become a lawyer and then um i just did that thinking that that was a chance to fight in a system for justice But then when the opportunity to run for the House of Delegates came up, I thought, oh, well, maybe this is a chance to shape policy in a way that will be able to impact our lives. And so my aspirations politically are completely driven by my desire to um, my, my being born into a black liberation movement and having no greater desire in life than to realize that in Baltimore City.
0: So let' So let's talk about you know one of the things that I feel like I've learned from both the, all the stories you told me from observing you is just the, the very sophisticated and particular ways the Democratic party operates and undermining that struggle for black liberation. And uh, as you know, the, you know the challenge with that is you know black we're, we're a captured electorate. You know Black people are Democrats because that's the place where the, we're the most viable. But as a result of that, you know, I don't think and I, I would, you know, feel like I can assume that for you, the Democrats don't deliver for black people to the extent that we provide them patronage and support as an institution. And in fact, efforts to seize power when it comes to black folks or to really do justice by black folks are undermined. So I want to break this up into two questions that I want you to reflect on. One is, you know, as you mentioned, Martin O'Malley. You know, being a white guy comes to a majority black city, able to become mayor and then governor, and just the way in which the Democratic Party s- took so much interest in making him a thing. Sure. You um, know, so if you can reflect, and we'll start with this. Re- if you can reflect on your sense of the damage that's done to black people, and the way that the the, the level of congealing that the Democratic Party did to Martin O'Malley's rise, like in your sense, how does that provide an example to uh, to us, the kind of anti-black and racist nature of the Democratic Party?
1: Well, Davon, you know, I am still in the Senate of Maryland. And so even talking about these issues now, um, possibly has a detrimental effect on me because, um, I I believe that there is a desire still to evade the truth about um, our reality as black people with the Democratic Party and, you know, a a part of um, why we're in the situation we are in is because of um, uh, black people's conditioning that if you want to participate in a system then you have a choice. You have a choice to be a Democrat or a Republican. And so that's why we so largely are Democrats. I was raised by my mom uh, to be a Democrat because, you know, there was only one choice. um, And she thought that the Democrats were the progressive people that were more interested in inclusion of black people and policy interests that were beneficial to us and um, that the Republicans were not. And so there was no choice growing up. We always participated in Uh, politics on a local level I have a lot of um, predecessors and mentors that were in Baltimore politics like Iris Reeves and Vera Hall um, who were also my mom's best friends and also uh, adopted aunts Mm -hmm. and um, so I thought that this party must be good because everybody that I knew was in it and I'm talking later on after the death of my dad Mm -hmm. who was much more of a revolutionary Um, And so um, I just followed along and supported candidates and always voted since the age of 18 and always participated in campaigns. But I was always looking for that parent Mitchell again. Mm -hmm. I was always looking for that person that was really for the people who had a a, a black people's agenda at heart. And I didn't really find it. But, you know, I get elected and um, I'm astounded because this party that I've been brought up to... Um, believe is supportive of our people is so hostile to me. And I couldn't understand it. I just absolutely could not understand it. Mm-hmm. And um, in large part, it was because the dynamic at the time was, um, and it, it wasn't, I want to be clear, it was Martin O'Malley's, the desire to embrace him and bring up um, and, and create a, um, a, a, a false narrative that he was somehow exceptional um, when he was very mediocre as a person, as a lawyer, as a politician. Like, there's nothing outstanding in his entire uh, resume, in his entire career, really, but for the Democrats to be like, oh, we want to lift this man up, make him mayor of Baltimore, governor of Maryland, and ultimately president of the United States. It's kind of absurd, really. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had a conversation with them, you're clear that there's nothing very exceptional about him, intellectually, um, in terms of vision, progressively, nothing. So... But there was this desire, and I think that um, perhaps it was because he was a white man and because he didn't have the, because he got elected um, in Baltimore by uh, an agenda that frankly resulted in the oppression of black people. And so I think that he was looked at as such a rising star and such a phenomenon because he's not from Baltimore, he's white, he comes to a majority black city, and he's able to get elected as mayor. and his agenda is to lock up black people. Mm-hmm. And he does that mm-hmm. successfully.
0: And you were in the center of the advocacy to address this mass arrest policy. So if you want to speak to just the, dime, I imagine that was something that upset the efforts to make him a thing.
1: Well I, well, I think the Democratic Party was not going to allow that to upset the efforts. And so, you know, um, just... So back then, I just remember um, I was newly elected. I I didn't come in with an agenda to deal with illegal arrest or necessarily or any of those issues. I didn't necessarily have an agenda. I sort of thought it might be minority business inclusion because that's who I've been working with, with the minority business associations and Robert Clay and all. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I get there. I'm newly elected about a year in, I think, um, if that. And... um, I get a call from a good friend of mine who's now passed away, Byron Franklin, who tells me he's been arrested in Baltimore and for nothing. And I've already been hearing this from my clients a lot. But, you know, everybody says they're arrested for nothing. (laughs) So I didn't didn't make a big deal about it. Like, what did you do? So I'm like, what did you do? (laughs) And he's like, I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what did the police say you did? And he's like, "Um, they didn't say anything because I didn't get any charge papers. And he was held for an entire weekend. And he was a lawyer, a guy that went to law school with me, and I, I believed him. And so I was like, how? At first, I didn't. I thought it was incredulous. Like, how in the world could you be arrested on a Friday, released on a Monday, and you have no charges? That's absurd. Mm. And so I started um, putting out feelers, and I even put out a petition, and I even put out an ad on the radio. And you might ask, why would you do that? Well, because I began to be clear, it was really common. Mm -hmm. And I needed to get the information about how often it was happening. Mm -hmm. And um, so... Because I could get no attention, even then. Even then, like the Baltimore Sun, I could get no attention um, from them, the Afro, either. So I didn't have any way to communicate to people. We didn't have social media. We didn't have Facebook then. Right, right. Um, And so I I paid out of my own personal money to go on the radio and ask people if they've been arrested or know of anybody being arrested uh, falsely, illegal arrest in Baltimore. And I remember that um, I put my script in for what my ad was going to say that I was paying for to WBAL. No, not W-O-L-B, I'm sorry, W-O-L-B. Mm-hmm. And it said um, um, that I believe that Martin O'Malley was responsible for policies of illegal arrest, and if this has happened to you, blah, blah, blah. And literally, I'm paying for my own ad on an alleged black-owned radio <laughs> station, and they tell me I can't use the, word, I- the words illegal arrest, even though I'm telling them I'm talking about illegal arrest, and I cannot use the words Martin O'Malley in my ad. So wow. I just turned it into... Arrest without charges if you've been arrested without charges. So, long story short, that wasn't, I don't believe, just a radio decision. That was a, a, we had a strong leadership decision then. Martin O'Malley had a lot of power, a lot of control. You had a Senate president who was completely in line with him. You had a, a House speaker completely in line with him. Every member of the city council completely in line with him. Every single member of the state delegation in Annapolis completely in line with him. And our congressional delegation. So everybody in this political system is in support of what O'Malley is doing. And even when given the data and the information, they're inclined to not believe it or do the Bill Clinton thing. Well, this is what they said they wanted. Mm -hmm. This is what the people said they wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, No, people never said that they wanted families and communities destroyed, people arrested for nothing. Um, they said that they wanted crime cut. They wanted to feel safe in their neighborhoods. They didn't say we want to feel um, safe from the drug dealers, but we don't want to be safe from the police, right? So it was just a massive of uh, miscommunication and falsehood to create this um, this this continue this narrative and and to keep um, O'Malley in power and to keep uh, the policies going on, which happened for the entirety of his uh, terms as mayor. From mm-hmm. 1999 to 2006, seven, you know this. I've said mm-hmm. this a million times. Mm-hmm. 750,000 arrests, uh, no less than one third to one half completely illegal arrest, and another portion of those what I would call unnecessary arrest, mm-hmm. arrests that are you know, maybe there was a legal justification for the arrest, but it's abated by. Um, The fact that you've served 45 days in sentence for urination,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) So all of these false arrests.
0: And this is between 1999 and 2006, the Uh 750,000 arrests.
1: Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I put this recently on Facebook for some reason, and someone said, that's impossible. (laughs) And I went back and found an old article that finally, at the end of it, finally at the end of it, there was an article that talked Mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And it was talking about how during that time, You know, it wasn't having a massive impact on cutting down violent crime or homicide. And the reason it wasn't is because you were locking up the wrong people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Basically, you're locking up all of black society (laughs) and not the people that are committing the crimes. Mm -hmm.
0: So so if you could say a little bit about, because you were saying that, you know, because of the strong leadership structure that that wanted O'Malley in power, we're talking about the Democratic Party establishment, um... How how would you describe the way that black people, other black people who might characterize themselves as champions of black people, how would you characterize how they postured themselves in the midst of this mass arrest policy that was happening?
1: Well, I mean, for the most part, they took sides with the Democrat establishment, perpetuated the narrative and then um, were very comfortable um, furthering a view that, the claims I was making, even though they were substantiated by the data, were wrong. And, you know, at a certain point, even with the um, NAACP and the ACLU getting involved, which, you know, I had a hand in because I was at the time chair of the Legal Registration Committee for the uh, NAACP, and I, I didn't want to see the ACLU take on an issue um, that impacted black people without having a black organization as part of it. Mm-hmm. And so that was a conversation that we had that started that entire um collaboration Mm -hmm. um and so um i would just say that you know for many of those years um i'll just say that you know it's a good thing that i grew up in uh, baltimore city public schools and had a lot of uh uh, criti- criticism from uh, some of my peers. It's a good thing that I went to Loyola College, which was a very, very racist school in the 80s. Um, there were no very few black women there. And, you know, I was very, um, I felt very alone and isolated there. And so it's a good thing that I had had those experiences as a precursor to what I was going to go through as a member of the House of Delegates. And so I basically, I just never felt um, like I, I was never made to feel like I had a right to be there, mm-hmm. and I was never made to feel like I had a right to speak, I had a right to have an opinion, um, I didn't have a right to pass bills, I didn't have a right to do anything, um, you know, and so what I, the, the impact that it had on me at the time was just, I just decided, I'm not going to take on battles I can't win, <laughs> I'm going to just take on things that I, I'm going to stick to what I know is right, and I'll, I'll stick in this narrow scope of where I feel like I have expertise. Um, they're not going to let me really branch out into anything else. They keep me in a, a box, mm-hmm. so I just continue to kind of plow away on those issues. And so over that time, um, that's when you saw me take on um, the efforts at police reform, mm-hmm. some criminal justice reform, some juvenile justice reform. All of these things that you know were not—they're non-starters then—that are now um, slowly but surely becoming laws um, over the last number of years. Um, but I also when I think back to those early years when I was in the House of Delegates, um, again, I was, I'm a person who believes I don't like doing anything that doesn't have a purpose. Mm. So I didn't wanna just be there or put in bills that had no purpose, so I like, spent time figuring out what is needed here. And I can think of two bills that we're you know, talking about now that have happened. One of them was a thought, a no-brainer, to get the lead out of the water in the public schools. Mm-hmm. There was a whole court case mm-hmm. that had happened. They shut the water off. They admitted that the it was lead infested. And I thought, no brainer, get the lead out of the water. Well, I wasn't supported by anybody in the Baltimore delegation. There was a whole major, we don't have time for the whole story, just so many shenanigans put forth to, to destroy the bill, right, it's insanity. Mm-hmm. And then um, I remember another bill that I had when i first gone in, listen to this, and, and you, this is all documented, like, you can look up the old uh, records and see this, um, with no advocacy groups, no provocation from anyone, just, like, I didn't understand why we weren't letting people who had served their sentences not be able to vote, right? Why didn't we let people with convicted convicted felons, uh, felonies be able to vote? So, I put in the bill to do that, and it was largely stomped down shot down mm-hmm. who do you think you are coming in here trying to do this i'm talking about by democrat leadership black people and some from baltimore mm-hmm. um i remember i had a bill to this is in the first year or two um to deal with predatory lending and the housing um foreclosure the a precursor to what we saw later with the foreclosure crisis and again mm-hmm. it was all this like who do you think you are and This was said to me. I'm not like saying this was like implied. No. (laughs) Who do you think you are coming in here putting in bills to do what we've already addressed Mm. or or what we're already working on. We're working on this. You don't have any business interfering in in, in legislative business, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you're a legislator. It's pretty
1: much what I was told. Mm. And I'm talking about black leadership now. And um and so, you know, some of these things, I just let it go. I, you, you're dealing with it. I'm gonna let you have it. Mm-hmm. I ain't gonna mess with it no more. And I didn't. I just mm-hmm. stuck again with like my criminal justice stuff or stuff I thought nobody else is really touching. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, what happens? We get that whole foreclosure crisis some years later. I feel like my bills I was trying to do would have put a dent in that would have stopped some of what happened. Um, we later on get in a couple of terms later we get uh then delegate cory mccray comes in and all these advocacy groups and unions and all are all we got to get the felons not uh, <laughs> right to vote and they all this embrace that and he gets that done and he's a big hero for that um not taking anything away from it it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. but it's just different time right. different leaders uh and also you know different players like um i feel and I don't have any, any I have I don't have any resentment or any envy of anyone because I know that, you know, my journey is my journey and this mm-hmm. is what I'm supposed to have experienced, you know, kinda of think my Angelo said wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. Mm-hmm. So I don't have those feelings, but I'm, I'm doesn't stop me from being keenly aware of the difference between mm-hmm. how I was treated and how someone like that was treated mm-hmm. or many other of my colleagues now. Right. So, um and, and even the lead in the water, same thing. Mm-hmm. Same thing. And think about it, though. What, what bothers me, I don't care, you know, that someone else did it later and got credit. I care that from the time it was proposed until they ultimately did it, you had people who didn't start the kindergarten, went all the way through the 12th grade with mm-hmm. freaking lead-infested water. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so I think, as you alluded to... Um, I think most people would agree. I mean, you're the most left progressive legislator in the state of Maryland, and we're seeing now, you know, the emergence of the popularization, a lot of the stuff that you worked on before. What are some of the lessons that you would draw from both your experience, both in terms of the policies and kind of how you were treated? And, and given this moment now where some of the stuff is more popular, I'm sure there are you know and we've discussed like new new uh, new approaches and techniques of obfuscation um you know new ways to try to circumvent doing the right thing what are what are some of the lessons that you draw from your experience that you would want people legislators or advocates addressing these same issues what are some of the lessons that you would draw from that that you would want to impart on people
1: so you know i would say um and it would be a responsible thing to say and a desirable thing to say that you know well when I look at the way that I approach things, I was new, I didn't have a lot of friends and allies in the body, and so I should have worked on making those friends and allies first mm-hmm. before I tried to pursue certain bills. But I'm also very clear that it wasn't possible to do at the time. Right. Um, there, there would be no allies, and I remember being told things like uh, when I said we have to have black ownership in slots and casino gambling, well that's too radical. And I'm talking about by legislators from Baltimore that were in leadership over me, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about somebody from Western Maryland Mm -hmm. or the Speaker. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about that was the mentality. Um, So it wasn't possible to do, I guess, you know. um,
0: But you're saying now— The environment may be different where that would have been an approach for someone. It would be
1: there's there's a a a younger, more progressive um, culture, especially in the House of Delegates, and Mm. you know I, I do feel that there I have allies there in the House and the Senate now that I didn't have and it wasn't possible to have then. And that's just with the turnover of the leadership. You know, when I first got elected, again, 20 years ago, I was one of the youngest members. Mm-hmm. Now there's people way, way, now I'm an elder, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> it was the older guard in mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. and they just weren't used to that. And that's also, we can't we can not not talk about the fact that it wasn't just the agenda, although it was largely that. It was that I was a black woman, mm-hmm. younger than most, mm-hmm. and without, I didn't come in um, through any selection process or any endorsement process i came in from a grassroots campaign mm-hmm. and you know thus i was independent of any obligations to anyone i had no pop no obligations to the democratic party
0: and i um, think i think that point's really important we probably should have discussed it earlier like the way you came in right because as you just said you came in um, you mentioned robert clay he was a big part of you know you being able to get in and because you got in not not as a result of the Democratic Party establishment's platform, in many ways, I imagine that was seen as threatening, you know, and that that, that impacted your experience and and how you navigated the legislature.
1: I remember um, my first time meeting Delegate Maggie McIntosh, who was you know now retired and you know known as pretty much an icon in legislature. The first thing she said to me, and it was kind of you know I wasn't aware of what. Um, a phenomenon kind of or an irregular thing it was for me to be elected without those endorsements and that support. Um, and, and then I got a lot of votes. So Maggie was like, so how'd you get so many votes? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like I ran. <laughs> I have no idea, but I, I do know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a lot of votes because when I worked hard, mm-hmm. and let's be clear, a lot of people run for office and they say they work hard, <laughs> but working hard means really working hard. Mm-hmm. It means being in the street yeah every day. It means... So in my very first campaign, there wasn't a morning when I wasn't either waving at traffic or going to the subway stations to give out the literature at Mondawmin and Cold Spring. Mm-hmm. Not a morning, right? And then that, that shift was over. There wasn't a time when we weren't from whoever we met in the morning that was supportive, that we weren't hitting their lawns with the lawn signs um, or, or and recruiting more people to volunteer and, and work. And so my first campaign was a labor of love, for the most part. Um, at no point then or now have I ever raised a lot of money. I've always not raised as much money as other people, and that's always been a, a you know, a, a curiosity for the Democratic Party of mm-hmm. how I can be so successful. Even this most recent election in uh, July the nineteenth, um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't spend a lot of money, and I don't have a lot of money, and I didn't really run a campaign. But I got a whole lot of votes. I know I was the only name on the ballot, Mm -hmm. but still, a lot of us were the, no senator in the city had a challenger, a Mm -hmm. real challenger. So um, I still got a lot of votes. And so I think at this point, and, you know, it is a name recognition. People have voted for me for a long time in the district, even though it's changed, you know, a little bit from redistricting. And I think also when I first got elected, um, it was not just... Uh, that I worked hard. It was my story. That, that mm-hmm. people people love a story. People loved my dad, mm-hmm. or the idea of my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they loved my mom. Mm-hmm. They really loved her for mm-hmm. real. <laughs> and um, and they loved that I was a Baltimore born and raised person. And I, they knew my parents. Like that's what they like. Mm-hmm. The voters. Um, now we're talking twenty years later. So many of those people are dead. They're mm-hmm. gone. But you know, I've been around for a long time. I, I would I would guess that still in twenty twenty two. A great number of people that pushed, uh, shaded my my name in, don't know who I am. Mm. Not they don't know. They they might vaguely know Walter Carter was her father. They don't know him. Some people think he was a minister. I hear that a lot. Oh yeah. Um, or they have seen me on TV. You know they do snippets, but they don't know that whole story. But I feel like that story is what started me mm-hmm. and got me elected that first time.
0: Mm-hmm. So going back to lessons real quick, one thing, one of the things that I feel like I learned acutely from you um, was how important it is to the Democratic Party to appear, to do to to move policy that appears to address issues of Black people, but in terms of actually, um, you know, substantively dealing with the issue. Like we talk about police accountability, where... The legislature wanted to appear to do something, but in terms of actually, you know, we talked about a lot about community oversight, like there's a desire to say that police accountability was addressed, but in terms of community oversight, there's just this reticence towards giving community power over law enforcement. So to me, like that's one of the things that I feel like in in thinking about newer legislators and advocates, for me, that's something that I think, that I know from just observing you Knowing to watch out for that, Um, you want to say a little bit about that or experience? Well, well,
1: I mean, well, I think that that's true, and I think that we're going to be in a struggle for a long time. That the next real movement in the state and this country, in my opinion, on police reform, on real police reform, is really got to be giving the people power over the law enforcement. Um, That's the next step. Like, like in this last uh, uh, season, you know, the kind of uh, stuff that we did, you know, the 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 release of of police disciplinary records the transparency the accountability measures that are put into the new scheme in repealing and replacing the law enforcement officer bill of rights those were the those are the flavor of this season but I think the next uh, the next movement has gotta be giving the people the power and I do think that's going to happen it's gonna happen little by little and it's gonna Mm -hmm. happen little by little across the country Mm -hmm. Um, Maryland will not be a leader in that clearly um, but um, it'll take the next event, the next crisis, the next you know, um, uh, person that's deemed a, vo- a voice on the uh, expert in the issue, to speak about how um, until, as long as police are policing themselves, mm-hmm. you're never going to have real change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you know people begin to embrace it. Just like it took George Floyd for these things to happen when we knew that we had over 500 documented deaths in Maryland at the hands of police. Mm-hmm. We didn't care, we, we t- took George Floyd to do it. Mm. Um, so I think also is another issue I know that you are interested in is the marijuana mm-hmm. legalization. That's what you're gonna see too. Mm. Um, you know, it's not an accident or a mistake that the legislature did not pass a licensing scheme mm. or deal with real criminal justice reform in um, passing the bill to put the marijuana question on the ballot the referendum for November Mm. Um, I have intense fear that it's going to be another major struggle to get real equity Mm. I am not optimistic Um, I think that you know all of these issues though um, what was lacking at the time that I first got elected and what has improved now but is not you know to the level where it needs to be is we got to be educated and organized
0: mm-hmm.
1: as a people. Um, you have your different, you know, organizations that did a great job at coming together to collaborate on police reform. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, there will be some of that on marijuana. But you know, I, from this past year, I don't think so because mm-hmm. everybody was all over the place. Mm-hmm. Nobody, was divided until people of a certain of this of a singular agenda are organized. And willing to use their their influence and their power to demand these changes, they will never happen. And what I mean by that is, so take marijuana. Mm-hmm. There's not not well. There's always an exception. There are hardly any black person, or white person, or Latinx person, or anywhere that if you said. Do you believe that the people that have been most harmed by prohibition should now benefit from legalization and not rich white corporations? They'd all agree. But until there's an effort to organize around that issue and have people to agree, you know what? If we're not going to have this equity, we don't want it at all. Mm -hmm. Until you have that, you're not going to see the kind of changes. And I think that, isn't that the dilemma of the entire political system from the beginning of time until now?
0: Right, right. right. (laughs) That's exactly right. And that actually, that's a pivot to one of the last things I want to discuss, which is is kind of broader. But this is an example. You know, we're on the Black Power Media platform. Um, You know, I know one of the conversations and debates that um, Dr. Jared Ball has a lot. Um, You know, he's really, you know, critical of the notion of buying power. And and really the point of his argument, um, at least from my perspective, is that that shouldn't trade off with the importance of political power, like the importance of, you know, really organizing for political power um, that will lead to all these other, you know, economic justice and all that. And... I think we're in a moment now where some people who perceive themselves as radical will ignore or diminish, I think, the importance of the role of politics, right, in, in, in achieving political power as a necessary part. And I remember years ago, there was a panel we did. It was a long time ago. And I remember you raised that, where you were like, it's a lot of people in here that talk a radical talk, you know, but if we're not organized and using the machinery of politics and political power... You know, then how realistic is it that things will change very much? So essentially, I want you to kind of kind of give that pitch again, just in terms of from your perspective, like for those who see themselves as radical, you know, those who see themselves as interested in black liberation, like really making the pitch as to why engagement with because uh, I think sometimes people confuse engagement with the political systems as like belief in America and its goodness and all that. So if you can demystify some of that, you know, and make a case to people who see themselves as radical, why engagement in the political system is important?
1: Well, I get it. I get that people feel like this system doesn't pertain to me. It's never going to move um, forward in a way that's beneficial to my cause or my people or my existence. So why why not? Why should I be bothered with it? But I think that my entire life and career, as we've talked about this, this time, is, um, is, is, is the example, you know. Um, I'm not happy with the progress or lack thereof that is being made in Maryland or the country. Um, I don't believe that my party has my interest or the interest of my people at heart. But I know that if people like me are not there, we won't even get the progress that we have. Now, what would strengthen me and our cause in the system is to have a whole posse of people that are, are registered as Democrats that can have an impact in terms of being able to guide and influence policies with their vote right um, when you're not a Democrat and you say like uh, you know I don't give a damn about you who nobody cares because you are not influencing whether they're in office or not right you, so what why should they why should they care why should anyone care what you think when you don't influence their ability to be in power or not And so that's the issue. Um, But again, you know, I always look at like talk about light stuff, like not just shaping policy because, you know, people don't people don't see it's it's difficult when they're involved in their individual daily lives to see how they have any extra time or energy to deal with what is going on in politics. But I I do talk about all the time the little things like you want to avail yourself of a scholarship. You want to avail yourself of the ability to even ask your legislator to, you know, show up somewhere or do a citation or make a phone call on your behalf. If you're if you're not engaged in the system, you're, the, la- the chances you're going to get any real response is slim to none. Mm-hmm. Um, because, frankly, when you're in elected office, you have an obligation to work on behalf of those people that have elected you. And that's registered voters who happen to be Democrats in my district. They come first. They come before everybody else, right? I might do something to help somebody else, but the people that have to get all of my, the majority of my attention, are the people that put me there, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that's the that's the that's the lesson. Like, if you don't engage, then you really people say, "Oh, if you, you if you don't vote, you can't complain." It, our vote is not enough, and that's the education that we need as a people. Mm-hmm. Um, our vote we need to start, you know, people have talked for, you know, a decade or more now about political literacy. No, we need, I mean, uh, financial literacy. We need political literacy. Um, we need to be taught because it. part of the problem in, uh, in Maryland politics and in, in America is that we are not educated or conditioned in any way to understand our influence in politics. The fact that the people really do hold the power, but if the people don't use the power they hold, then, you know, it's useless. And so, we, we go through our educational system, we're educated to get our, our careers, we um, then are socialized and we're in sororities and fraternities and we go to our churches and we do all of these things and nowhere in any of that are we being educated about coming together and using the influence of our organization, our church, our sorority, our fraternity, um, our clubs, our or to use it to influence the politics of our community and the politics that governs our lives and the lives of our families, mm. and so that's the big failing. That and I really think that's the key to change um, is educating and organizing people around poli- politics. And the reason I, I think it's not a mistake. Like it's not. It's not like oh we forgot to put that in, <laughs> the, in the in the curriculum.
0: <laughs> you know,
1: right. it's intentional.
0: Got it. All right. Well, um
1: what if every non-voter in Baltimore City in some of the um, all black, most um, disinvested communities had been a registered voter at the time that Martin O'Malley became the mayor and is. then continued to perpetuate those oppressive policies? What if all of those people voted? He wouldn't have been possible. Mm. What he did wouldn't have been possible. Mm. Um, so that's that's an example.
0: Mm. All right, so um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, something that just happened. We had a Democratic primary, uh, well, primary of both, both parties, Republican and Democrat. We have a Republican who's a trump back Republican, Dan Cox, which is fairly unprecedented, you know, in Maryland politics. Um, and then we have Wes Moore, who's a political newcomer, who is the Democratic nominee. Um, you know, and one of the things I've openly said is that, you know, it's hard to get a sense of you know exactly where Wes is politically, given that he's a political newcomer, um, and and typically in these kind of situations, especially just with the fact that Cox is a Trump back Republican, so there's much more urgency to make sure that he doesn't win. And so you know some folks, they're different. I think that there are two different paths that Wes can that Wes can take as a Democratic nominee, him and his campaign, and the party, the Maryland Democratic Party. They can try to tack to the middle, right, try to go for those like Hogan Democrats, right, those Larry Hogan Democrats, those conservative Dems, um, which, you know, would appeal to a wider, more suburban base. Or West and the party could take the approach of going deeper into the black community, addressing issues that directly impact black folks that may be traditionally disengaged. And one thing I don't think people know, you know, I know a lot of people that worked on the Stacey Abrams campaign. And regardless of kind of where she is politically now, one of the key parts of her strategy um, that really set the stage for Georgia to go blue um, was registering new voters. I mean, as you know, typically the approach to campaigns is you focus on the people who voted and not people who have not. Um, And what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia was a departure from that, and and I think that particularly in this general, West and his campaign and the party, ha, you know, have it, and it's specifically in Maryland, moving thirty percent black, eleven percent Latinx. Uh, I don't know the numbers exactly, but the overall the rank and file of the Democratic Party is our folks. So, you know, I, of course, I think it will be obvious anyone who knows you know my work that I would want him to go in the direction of our community and be directly addressing it though that may be a liability for the folks, for those Hogan Democrat types. So so that's my sense of what the general is. Um, You want to say a little bit about your sense of the general for governor in Maryland?
1: Sure. You know, I'd like to just backtrack on what you talked about before about the party, though, Um, and I want to just bring up the fact that, you know, many people are excited because it looks like, you know, we've got our first um, potentially black black governor. But um, eight years ago, The party decided to sit on its hands when it came to Anthony Brown and then blame Anthony Brown for not running a good organized campaign or being a good candidate or whatever. You know, I want to go back to Martin O'Malley was about the most mediocre candidate you've ever seen. He has no real charisma, no real intellect, nothing. So the idea that when this black man comes along, the party couldn't do enough, offer that man enough support... You know, there was no interest in the party. But at the time, we didn't have the opposition of a Dan Cox. We just had a regular old Republican, right? (laughs) Like what they thought. Like somebody they could live with. And it is my belief coming, when you look at that, coupled with four years later with uh, Ben Jealous that nobody saw coming, um, who was the true progressive. The true person that came out of black struggle. um, The true person that articulated policies that were way to the left of the Maryland party, and you saw the party not just sit on their hands, leadership, many of them actively um, supported Hogan. Mm -hmm. It showed you that the Maryland Democratic Party would prefer prefer to have Republican Um, than a black person who was a progressive as well, or in Anthony Brown's case, just a black person, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Now, here we are. Um, They rejected the black man eight years ago, times of change in the country. They rejected the progressive black man four years ago, but this time, you didn't see them wait until now. Um, You saw the leadership of this state embrace Westmore at the very beginning. And I think that um, he didn't articulate any policies, but he has the benefit of being um, likable. He has likability factor and a lot of charisma, and that's what everybody keeps talking about. But I think the other issue that Westmore had, uh, that more so than Anthony Brown or Benjela's, is he had access to a lot of influx of money. And so, um, without hesitation, much of our Democrat leadership endorsed him at the door.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do we influence which way they go? That's up to us. And what I mean by that is, um, so actually Obama also started that phenomenon with the registering new voters, even before Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. on the national level. Right. Um I would hope that that's what we would do. Um, organizations, black organizations and black people and black leadership, it's up to us to use the opportunity, I think, to to take the tact of getting black people involved. But let me, you know, now that I think about it, I don't actually know that I have an answer to your question because, you know, that whole idea about, with this is a kind of analogous, but not really, but um, with Martin Luther King, you know, integrating his people into a burning burning house House. Mm -hmm. i don't know how without really knowing what this agenda is going to be i don't know how we really excite and and invite young people because i don't i don't want i don't want young people to feel like they're getting burned Mm -hmm. i don't want them to feel like i don't want to lose people because we said please we, we we need you to do this you've got to do this our very survival depends on it and then they do it and then they're sorely disappointed um so the answer, I guess the answer I can give is, I think that without a doubt, um, the the administration is going to ignore to the middle, mm. because that's what the party is, and mm. the party has a great deal of influence over what this campaign will be and what the, the future will be. Um, mm. It's not as much about the candidate as it is about the influence of the party, mm. and that's, I mean, just if the party embraced a candidate and that's where the party is, that's where that's where I think we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and guess what? The, the setup is almost perfect. And mm-hmm. why I say that, you couldn't um, convince that many people that Hogan was like the Antichrist. <laughs> right,
0: right, right.
1: But they don't have to do anything, right? All they got to do is... <laughs> get the majority because the majority is already democrats and you add the independents that are not radical extremists to the right republicans we've already won right so there's no real need to do anything and and my fear is yeah this is not a good thing for progressive movement it's not a good thing for progressive movement at all Mm -hmm. um because now the the deal is that we gotta fight radical right winger Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so we're busy fighting the radical right winger Progressivism is going to get lost in the sauce.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it's it's not a good. I don't think it's good for progressive mm. for the next uh, for the immediate future.
0: Mm-hmm. Got you, got you. All right. Well, enjoyed having this conversation uh, with you today. Again, this is uh, Dave on Love, Director, of Public Policy, Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle with Senator Joe Carter. See you all soon. <laughs>